Testing one, two, three. We can turn on your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're continuing our study through the book of Romans. If you're um, visiting with us today, make sure you fill out that portion of the folder. I should have said that before the offering, but you can just hand it to me afterwards so we have a a, uh, record of your attendance with us. We appreciate that. But Romans chapter 8 is where we find ourselves this morning, and I uh, want to um, continue on with uh, where we left off last week. Uh, we didn't completely finish the message last week, but um, if you re- remember, we were talking about the assurance of our salvation uh, in Christ, and um, we talked about how Romans 8 begins with no condemnation, is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And at the end of the chapter, it ends the same way. Who will condemn us? No one. And so uh, the whole point, really, of this chapter is to give us uh, assurance of salvation as we live our Christian lives by the power of the Spirit, not by the power of the flesh. And so we looked at a couple uh, things last week. We looked at the three pillars that assurance rests on. And the first one was to ask yourself the question, have you abandoned all trust in your own good works so that you're trusting in Christ alone for right standing before God? That's very fundamental to your salvation. If you're trusting in anything that you bring to the table, you might want to look at that again. Um, the second pillar we looked at last week was if your faith is genuine then you possess new life in Christ and that new life always manifests itself in changed thinking and behavior in other words there will be evidence in your life that the creator God has changed you has transformed you has saved you you don't have to manufacture this evidence it happens through the power of the spirit transforming your life we're going to talk a little bit more about that today your love for God and your desire to love him more and more increases if you're truly one of his children you'll grow in godly character if you're truly one of his children and that's all summed up in the The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians talks about. But the third pillar that we looked at last week was the inner witness of the Holy Spirit who testifies that we are children of God. And that kind of brings us to our text. And I want to read um, verses uh, 14 through 16 uh, of our text again, just so it's fresh in our, our hearts and minds. I'm going to start in verse 12 just to keep everything in context. So then, brothers... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear... But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children 
of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see there the inner witness, that third pillar of the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Not maybe, not possibly, they are. And so last week we looked at our study and we concluded that if the Spirit is leading us to kill our sin and and confirming to us the promises of the gospel daily in our lives, then we can be assured that we are children of God. And we, in review, we, we talked about these five important spiritual truths that were brought out in the text. And the first one we looked at was not everyone is a member of God's family. This is something that is a product of liberal thinking today, liberal theology, that everybody is a son of God or a daughter of God, they would say. And, And that's just not true. The universal fatherhood of God or the universal brotherhood of man, however you want to describe it, um, is not what the Bible teaches. Uh, As a matter of fact, Jesus was very, very clear that there are two groups. There are those who have God as their father and those who have who? The devil, Satan, as their father. And he pointed that out rather clearly in uh, the book of uh, uh, John. And so Jesus was basically reiterating the, 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 the simple truth there that not everyone is a member of God's family. Now, we're all created by God. We wouldn't argue that. But we're not all members of God's family. We're not all born from above. We're not all born again. And that's what um, Jesus had to explain to Nicodemus. If you want to be part of the kingdom, if you want to be part of God's family, it's not good enough just to be part of the lineage of Abraham or whoever you want to quote, but it's important that you become born again. You become born from above. And that leads to the second pillar that we looked at here, the second important spiritual truth, is that all Christians are members of God's family. There's not a Christian on the face of the earth that could say, well, I'm not a member of of God's family. No, that's not true. Um, Every Christian, those who have put their faith or trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and in his work on Calvary alone, if you're a believer, then you're part of God's family. And we looked at three elements of that. First of all, it's radical. To become a child of God means that an individual has experienced a radical or profound change. This isn't just adding Jesus to your life. See, that's how a lot of religious people or a lot of religious churches think of their newfound faith. Well, I just added Jesus to my life. So here's what I was doing before, and I just kind of added Jesus in a slot in my life. No, that's not legitimate saving faith. That's just conforming your life to some religious organization's um, do's and don'ts. I mean, I grew up in a church where that's basically what you did, is you conform to what they told you to do. 
You had no life change. You had total spiritual disconnect between what you were doing on Sunday in church and what you did the rest of the life, rest of the week. There was no connection at all. In our family, I remember very clearly, my brothers, I was younger, so I, I didn't partake of this, but I remember sitting at the table when they were all imbibing of various <laughs> alcoholic drinks and uh, telling all these stories and just getting wasted. But boy, Sunday morning, they were there in church. Only to go back to the same thing week after week after week. And so there's a radical change that happens when someone is transferred from Adam's family, the, the family of death, the family of sin, into Christ's family. And we looked at all that last week. So you can get the, the message on that if you, if you need to. But to be part of Adam's family, to be in Adam, as the Bible says back in Romans 5 and 6, means that you're basically in your sin. You're a slave to wickedness. You're under divine judgment. Therefore, you're destined for eternal death. To be in Christ is just the opposite. It means to be delivered from sin. It means that it's, you're delivered from God's judgment. It means to be growing in holiness and possessing eternal life with certainty. And that change comes in someone's life radically. Secondly, we looked at it's a supernatural thing that happens. It's not only radical, the change, but it's supernatural. Um, And that meant that it has to be done from someone outside of ourselves. It has to be done from a divine being. It's supernatural. And we looked at Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was confused. Well, how can somebody be born when he was older? Tell me he'd be born again, Jesus. I don't understand. Jesus made it very clear in that passage in, in John chapter 3, made it very clear that becoming a child of God is a matter of spiritual birth. It's, it's not a matter of what church you join or if you got baptized or it, none of that stuff. It's only something the Spirit of God can do. And that word born again, that again implies that this birth is from above. It's something that happens to us. It's divinely imparted spiritual life. And then thirdly, we said it's far-reaching. And by that, we, we meant that it doesn't end at the spiritual rebirth. It doesn't mean that you just get saved and then, okay, then God walks away and says, okay, you're going to heaven. I don't care what happens to the rest of you. No. It doesn't happen that way. He gives us what? The power of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that is pleasing to God each and every day. And he even, in verse 17, as we read, he even calls us, if we are children of God, then we are heirs of God. And co-heirs with Christ. I mean, just think about that for a second. That's an amazing thing. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What's he saying? It's a package deal. You don't get the glory without the suffering. You know, you see some of these people that are go to the gym every day, and they're just like, you know, there's not an inch of 
fat on their body. And you're going, wow, that's amazing. They're in such good shape. And it's funny, when we run into somebody like that, we always ask them this question. Well, you know, do you work out? It's like, duh. I mean, no, I just, I just take one of those little pills and this just naturally happens while I sleep. I mean, stop and think about it. It's such a silly question, but we all ask that question. Well, boy, you, or you, must, you must go to the gym. No. I, just, I sit home and eat donuts all day, and this is how I have this wonderful physique. You know, you don't get the glory without the suffering. You don't get the paycheck without putting in the time. I mean, however you want to look at it. Okay, that's so important to understand because there's a certain theology today that teaches just the opposite. That, oh, you come to Jesus and he'll just bless you with health, wealth, and prosperity and you don't have to do nothing. It doesn't even matter really how you live. You can do whatever you want because you're under the grace of God. Well, this section here in Romans chapter 8 Verses 14 to 17 really speaks about our relationship with God. It it speaks regarding a a key word here in the text, the word adoption. This isn't in your notes, but I think it's up on the screen. That we are sons of God, that we are children of God, he says. Why? Because we have been adopted, he says. He says. Well, what does adoption speak of? When you think of adoption today, when you think of a child who's adopted, in our mind we think, oh, this poor child, (laughs) right? There's nowhere else to go, so wow, he just had to be adopted. But really, in the text, adoption speaks of love, of mercy, and grace. If you were to define adoption, it would be the legal action whereby a person is brought into a family in which he has no blood relations. That's what adoption is. A person being brought into a family in which he has no blood relations. When a person is adopted, beloved, he is given all the privileges that the other members of the family possess. Even though he's no relation. Look over at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And this is kind of leading up to our, our third principle here, but we're just kind of just review introduction stuff. But if you look at second, did I say first? Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 to 18. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 to 18. He's quoting here, and he says, I'll start in verse 16 there, where the quote, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then he says this, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Separate from who? Separate from those who are worshiping idols, the unbelievers. Um, Be separate from them. And touch no unclean thing. And I will welcome you. And look at what he says in verse 18. And I will be what? A father to you. And you shall be 
sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. God extends adoption. He extended it to the Israelites and he extends it to us through Christ. And he says basically, in that context, he says you need to come out from among them. God extended adoption to the redeemed of Christ's church. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, you can turn over there if you want. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 says basically, very clearly, verse 3 starts, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, you had nothing to do at all with your salvation. That we should be holy and blameless before him. And then he says this, in love, verse 5, he predestined us, what? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Those of us who are saved have received the Holy Spirit, which is called the spirit of adoption. And we have been made sons and daughters of God even though we don't deserve it. (laughs) Even though there's no relationship there, God made us his children. And we find this theme all the way, basically, back back to Romans 8. When he starts off, he says, there's now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ. He's designating that, you know what, something has changed Um, the Holy Spirit confirms our adoption. And that confirmation should be very assuring to us as believers. In other words, he placed us into his own family by the miracle of regeneration. He transferred us from an alien family that had no connection to God whatsoever into God's family. And he confirms that reality in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. And like I said, in our society today, when you think of somebody who's adopted, you know, oh, I'm adopted, you know. It's kind of like you're a second-class citizen. You're you're a second-class offspring. You know, that's the stepdaughter or the stepson. I always thought it was... Interesting, after Ambika and I got married, there was an occasion when I was in between churches and I was sending out resumes for a youth pastor before I started working with the DA's office. And I remember sending a picture along with the resume, which they requested of my wife and my daughter. And my wife's darker than I am, obviously, and our daughter's darker than the both of us. And I remember sending this off to some churches that um, had a real issue with probably mixed families. Um, And I remember one calling me and saying, wow, we got your resume. Everything looks good. You sent along that picture. Yeah. Uh, And that's that's your family? Yes. Okay. Um, And so that's your wife. 
Uh, and my daughter? Oh, okay, that's your daughter? Yeah, that's my daughter. Um, it's just silence. And I said, well, technically, she's my wife's daughter, and she became my daughter when I married my wife. Oh, oh, oh okay, okay, so she's your stepdaughter. <laughs> no, she's my daughter. But she was from a previous marriage. And they never called me back. But uh, that issue with that, obviously, okay. But my, my, the important thing is, is that when we are adopted into God's family, there's no stepchildren in God's family, okay? It just doesn't happen that way. As a matter of fact, back when Paul was writing this in the society in which he lived, the Roman society, if a father didn't think that any of his own sons were worthy to inherit his name or his estate, he would adopt a son for that purpose. He would go out into the community and he would find somebody who's worthy of that inheritance. He would find someone with the character and the talents that he needed to be his son who was worthy of his inheritance. Even though he already had some sons, maybe they weren't didn't have the character needed. And the adopted son would then take the precedence over that man's real sons. Amazing. In the the Roman ancient culture, you have to understand, as an adopted son, this wasn't some, you know, stepchild picked up off the street. You have to understand that he was chosen... By the father to inherit all of his estate and to actually bear his name. And so when the Bible says that we have become adopted sons of God, it's not like we had nowhere else to go. It's not like we were just wandering. However we were. It doesn't mean that God picked us up off the street just to care about us. Just because, well, you know... Poor kids, they need, they need a father, and I'll, I'll, I'll bring them into my family. And... No, it, it, it does mean this, that he has chosen us to bear his name and to inherit his estate. Isn't that incredible truth? We don't become children of God through a process, the Bible says, of natural birth. We become his children because he sovereignly chooses us before even the foundation of the world. Now, I know some of you are older, some of you are up in age, but I don't think any of you have been around before the foundation of the world. Okay, so the Bible is very clear that we are saved because God sovereignly chose us. You say, well, why would he choose me? I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out myself. But that's what the essence of biblical adoption means. Well, what are the consequences of adoption? In the Roman society, there are basically consequences here. The first one was the adopted person lost all ties to his old family. If you agreed and father came and said, yeah, I want to adopt you, okay, great. The adopted person gained all the rights of the natural children in his new family. And he lost all the ties to his old family. I mean, isn't that a beautiful picture of what happens at salvation? 
Secondly, the adopted person became an heir of his new father. He became an heir. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit next week when we get into verse 17. The existence of these natural-born children did not affect the adopted children's rights. He was actually a co-heir, sometimes a sole heir, if that's what the father wanted. The adopted child was considered as a real child, just as real as those who were naturally born of the mother. Thirdly, the adopted person's past was forgotten. What do I mean by that? Well, in Roman society, if you were adopted, when a person was adopted, all of his legal debts were canceled. How many of you are saying, hey, can somebody adopt me? (laughs) That's so true. All of his legal debts were canceled. He was given a new new name, just as if he had never even been born before. And you know what? The same thing happened to you when you came to Christ. You were adopted into God's family. All your past debts were canceled, and you became a co-heir of the Son of God and everything that he possesses. All those things happen when we were adopted into God's family. We are legally and eternally the sons of God. Nothing can ever change that. Now, that word adoption is is rich in its meaning. It, It really is insufficient to describe everything that that happens. Um, Both adoption and regeneration kind of explain how God brings us to himself. But we're called, we're named the sons of God. We're given a title to an inheritance. And we're no longer under any condemnation because we've been adopted into a new family, into God's family, and all of our former debts have been canceled What a wonderful blessing. And he made us his children. He established our right to be in his presence. And no one can condemn us because there's no higher court than God's courtroom. Amen? I mean, that's where the buck truly stops. And so Romans 8.15 says that we have received the spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit confirms in our hearts the reality of our adoption. And that's kind of where we are right now in our outline there. Uh, Point three, to be Christian means to be led by God's spirit because we've been adopted into his family. So we have the spirit of God. I mean, up to this point, doctrines that we've been talking about might refer to the change of status only. Before we were in Adam, now we're in Christ. But now it kind of fleshes itself out in a very practical way. That if you're going to be a Christian, if you are truly a Christian, then you will be led not by your flesh. You will be led by the very Spirit of God that dwells within you. That's what verse 13 says. If we live spiritually now and forever, if, we, if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, sin of the body... Verse 14 adds that we will indeed do 
just that if the Spirit truly lives within us. You know, years ago, it was always challenging for someone to test their um, physical paternity. Who's my mother? Who's my father? And sometimes they were brought into court and they would try to, you know, the lawyers would go, well, that is your child and you have to pay child support, whatever it might be. Well, I never knew this lady and, you know, it was very, almost impossible to prove a lot of times. Well, now with DNA and all that stuff, it's a no-brainer, right? I mean, you can prove it very quickly. It's the test of paternity. Well, how do we know that we are in God's family? All right? Basically, if the Spirit of God, and this is the fourth point, if the Spirit of God is leading us in our daily lives, um, it's the path of discipleship. It's the path of following Christ. So you can't call yourself a Christian and then do whatever you want to do. I mean, you can do that, but obviously your, your Christianity is called into question. Because becoming a Christian, being born again, it's not just adding Jesus to your life, right? It's not just calling yourself a Christian. It's not just saying, well, Jesus is Lord, and then living like he's not. That's not legitimate faith. That's not saving faith. And yet our churches are full of people that read the Bible and they see what it says and then they go and do whatever they want. That's not saving faith. So we have to be careful when we talk about these things because to be a Christian means that you're led by the Spirit of God. That's what he says there. And if the Spirit is leading us, then we can be assured that we are children of God. But what does it mean to have the Spirit lead us? That's the big question, right? How does the Spirit lead us? How do we know? And people have a lot of ideas about this. A lot of them are unbiblical. Some answer these questions dealing with outward circumstances, experiences. Others look at feelings, something on the internal, maybe special revelations they claim to have. Some think of guidance almost kind of magically, Expecting God to really direct them to some verse supernaturally. So they close their Bible. Lord, God, give me wisdom. You know, and they do this deal. You know, God, give me wisdom. I don't like that one. I don't like that one. You got to be careful with that, right? That's not how God leads us. But we do have to be careful because we can't deny that God does lead sometimes in mysterious ways. He truly does. St. Augustine's testimony says that he was converted by hearing a neighbor's child singing the words tole lege, which means take, read. 
That's how he came to faith in Christ. He received it as a word from God. He picked up his Bible and he started turning to a passage at random. He fell upon the verses that spoke to his specific need and he was converted. Now, we don't have the right to say that, well, that wasn't from God. I'm not saying that. But are we to expect that kind of guidance to be normal? If so, the majority of us would have some story like that. And I would imagine if we went around the room, most of us didn't get converted by hearing some child say, here, take, read. Oh, i got to get my Bible and read. You know, no. All right, that was a divine thing that happened, obviously, but at least a testimony that it happened. And all of us could probably have some supernatural event in our life that led us to Christ. But if being led by the Spirit is what it means to be a Christian, if that's what it means to be led, just having some supernatural, really incredible experience, then probably most of us are not Christians. Because probably most of us didn't come to Christ that way. That's not what Paul's saying. He's really saying here that, you know what? That the Holy Spirit works within us. You might say internally, because that's where he dwells, within us. Paul's been talking about our minds being set on what the Holy Spirit desires. And about our having an obligation, you might say, to live according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. And so in these next verses, he speaks of this internal witness that God has given us through the power of the Spirit. Now, God can order external events. Of course he can. He's sovereign. He can do that. He orders everything. But that's not what's being discussed here. In this verse, Paul is talking about what God's Spirit does within us to lead us, to guide us. So what does the Holy Spirit do internally to Christians to lead them? Well, first of all, there's three things. First of all, he renews our minds. He renews our minds. The first area in which the Holy Spirit works is what? The intellect. It's the mind. And he does this by what Paul calls renewing of your mind. Look at what it says there in Romans 12 over a couple pages, and we'll get to this eventually. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's a whole sermon in itself. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed. How? By the renewal of your, what's it say? Mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, don't you want to discern what is the will of God? Don't you want to understand what is good and pleasing and perfect in his sight? Well, the first step is the renewal of our mind. See, the person who discovers, tests, and approves what God's pleasing and perfect will is, is obviously being led by the Spirit of God. It's, this, it's the mind's renewal. I mean, before I was a Christian, I had no concern what God's will for my life was. I didn't really care. 
I just knew I had to go to church and confession and, and do those things. And, you know, hopefully God would like me if I died one day. I had no concern for it. How then are our minds renewed? Well, there's only one way. It's by reading and being taught by the Spirit from the Word of God. Um, This doesn't happen by osmosis. You can't put your Bible on your pillow at night and just fall asleep, and hopefully everything in that book will penetrate your brain. It doesn't work that way. That is why God has given this book, His Word, the Bible, to us to inform us, to enlighten our minds, to redirect our thinking. And the Holy Spirit and the Bible are together in this. The person who considers himself to be led by the Spirit of God apart from the Bible will soon fall into error. Beware of anybody that comes to you saying, I got a new word from the Lord. God revealed himself to me, and here's what he said. Unless that person quotes scripture to you, don't listen to it. That's how all these false teachers get around what we read in the Bible. They're not reading the Bible. They're taking bits and pieces of it and they're putting it together and parsing it in a way that makes it say whatever they want it to say. That's why you have some of these people saying that they're God. How could they, how could they call themselves a Christian minister and say that they are God? Or some of them are saying that Christ's death on the cross wasn't sufficient that he still had to go to hell and he still had to pay a price. So they believe and teach that Jesus went from the cross to, the, to hell, literally. How do they do that? They take pieces and bits of scripture out of context. A person who reads the Bible apart from the illumination provided by the Holy Spirit, which is basically all unbelievers, unfortunately, they'll find it to be a closed and meaningless book. However, the Christian is led by the operation of the Holy Spirit and the Bible together. The test is this. Has the Holy Spirit been leading you by enlightening your mind through Bible study? Have you discovered things about God yourself and the gospel and the ways of God that you did not know before? Do you realize that they're true? Are you beginning to live differently because of some of the truth that you have discovered within the word of God? I mean, if you stop and think about it, a person who realizes that one way is true and another way is false and yet takes the false path, I mean, to me, that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you come to a split in the road and you say, you know, if you go down that road, you're going to go over the cliffs and die. But if you go down this road, 
you know, you'll, you'll go to a wonderful meadow and, ha- meadow and have a beautiful picnic with your family and friends and it'll just be a wonderful celebration. I mean, there are people that stand at that place and they go, ah, I think I'll take this road. I'll go over the falls. I don't like my family anyway. See, God has to renew our mind. He has to renew our mind. Secondly, he stirs the heart. How does the Spirit lead us? He stirs the heart. Figuratively, the heart is the seat of emotions. The Holy Spirit works upon it by stirring or quickening the heart to love God. You can always tell when someone is not really... There's something wrong with their profession of faith because you begin to talk to them and and sometimes they will even confess sin. I have this problem in my life. But there's there's no grieving. There's no heartfelt being sorry for it. They're just looking at it going, yeah, well, praise God he died for all my sins because I have a ton of them. And they continue to have a ton of them. Because there's no conviction. There's no sorrow. There's no come to understanding that, you know what? God's heart breaks over that sin. And as a believer, we need to be stirred in our heart. That's why Paul says here, look at what he says. He speaks of this inner response to which God is moving. And he cries out, what? Abba, Father. Over in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. In other words, the spirit of God leads us by making us affectionate toward God and his ways. So we have a newfound desire within us to do what God wants us to do. And not to do what God does not want us to do. It's the Spirit who causes us, as Jesus would say, to hunger and to thirst for what? For righteousness. This isn't something you just invent. You know, you don't just start coming to church and say, okay, well, I guess I gotta, you know, like everything that's that's good and, and hate everything that's bad. This brings us to another test or whether or not you're a Christian. Do you love God? I mean, do you love God perfectly? None of us do. None of us can. If your answer to that is yes, you probably don't love God at all. If you think you love God perfectly... What I mean is, do you try to please God? Do you want to spend more time with him through studying his word and praying? Do you seek his favor? Are you concerned for his glory? See, all those things are are things that God stirs in our hearts. And when you see someone who's claiming to be a Christian sin with no emotional fallout at all, you have to conclude that there's no faith there.
Because we all sin in a myriad of ways. And I can't tell you the times when I sin, God convicts me. And I end up being sorrowful over that sin. It may not happen right at that moment. But you know what? It happens. And that sorrow comes. And I realize, man, I blew it again. I grieve God by doing this that he does not want me to do. And I go to God and I confess it. I say the same thing that he would say about the sin, that it's wrong. And I what? Thank him. I don't need to beg him for my forgiveness. I thank him for his forgiveness. Because he's already forgiven me in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful blessing that is. So he stirs our heart. Thirdly, he directs our wills. He directs our wills. Just as the Spirit leads us by renewing our minds and stirring our hearts and our affections to love what he loves, he does so by redirecting and strengthening our wills to go after what he desires. How does the Spirit, Holy Spirit lead a person? Well, he doesn't do it forcefully. It's not... God's not forcing us to do things, what does he do? He leads by literally changing our will. When the Lord redeems people, he doesn't leave them on their own. Aren't you thankful for that? I mean, what what a horrible life it would be if God saved you, if he forgave you of all your sins and then said, there you go. (laughs) See you later. Hopefully we'll see you in heaven one day. Didn't give you the Holy Spirit didn't give you any, the word, didn't give you any brothers and sisters to encourage you. He just kind of let you waffle down here on this sin-filled earth till you died or he came back. That would not be a joyful experience. That would be a miserable experience. Because without the Spirit of God, we would be hopeless. (laughs) Well, how does the Spirit lead us? He does so by a couple ways, but one of these ways is illumination. Illumination. I don't think that's in your notes, but he directs our path by helping us to understand God's word. You know, when you come to this book, I hope that you come to this book prayerfully. I hope that you don't just, you know, oh, yeah, whenever I got to read this a couple of pages today for my devotion. You, you should always come to God's word prayerfully. Sometimes he'll lead us in a specific practical way, but primarily he leads through the illumination of his word. Look back at Genesis chapter 41, verse 38 and 39. Genesis 41, 38 and 39. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. The Egyptians looked at Joseph's wisdom and they acknowledged that, you know what, this doesn't come from this man. This comes from a supernatural being. And they called it the Spirit of God. Today we receive God's wisdom through his word. That's how we receive it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 19, Paul says this, Ephesians 1, For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, 
may give you what? The spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance to the saints? And what are the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Paul prays and understands that God gives us wisdom through the power of his spirit. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 to 19, Paul prays again. He says, he prayed that according to the riches of glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to compare, comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the height and the, the depth and the length and to know that the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How does it happen? Through the Spirit. Colossians 1.9, Paul says, And so, from that day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with, controlled with, the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, the Spirit of God, beloved, fills us with the knowledge of God's will. And He does so primarily through the illumination He gives us when we read the Bible. That's why it's so important To read your Bible. If this book is not in your hand every day, if you're not putting what is on the pages of this book in your heart every day, there's something wrong. There's something terribly wrong. Colossians 3.16 tells us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And you know what? When you do that, the word of God comes alive. Start off small. Take the book of 1 John and say, you know what? I'm going to read through that book every day for a month. You know what's going to happen after 30 days? You're going to know what's on the pages of Scripture concerning 1 John. Even if you just read it casually, just the repetitive nature of reading through it, it'd probably take you maybe 20 minutes if you're a slow reader. You're going to understand what's on the pages of this book. And yet so many times we look for gimmicks, we look for devotionals, we look for other things that take us away from this book and into another one. And God is saying, no, spend time in this letter that I have written to you. Now with that being said, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says very clearly, the natural man, those who are not saved, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him, nor is he able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The unbeliever, the non-Christian, the person who does not have the Spirit of God cannot understand Scripture on his own. Can he understand the words? Well, yes, clearly. But he's not going to understand the true spiritual meaning as the Holy Spirit defines us, defines for us when we read through his power and his illumination. Why? Because we literally have the mind of Christ. When we are part of the body of Christ. In Luke chapter 24 verse 45. Christ opened the disciples. It says this. Understanding that they might understand the scriptures. These are people who were with Christ every day. And yet he still had to help them. Understand the scriptures. 
That's why it's so exciting to see so many ladies, ladies signed up for this hermeneutics class because you know what? If you can't understand what's on the pages of Scripture, your Christian life is, is, is I don't know how you would do it. You know, you're, you're going to be just kind of shooting in the dark. You know, studying the Scripture is like any other craft. It takes time. It takes commitment. It takes a willingness to sit down and understand what the text is saying. You know, don't, don't play willy-nilly with the Word of God. Sometimes I get so frustrated. I got to kind of bite my tongue sometimes. Because I'll hear Christians who, I, I know they mean well. But they'll ask questions. And the question a lot of times they'll ask is, they'll, they'll, they'll go to verse and they'll say something like, well, what does that mean to you? Because to me, it means this. <laughs> I'll go, okay. Who cares? I mean, in all honesty, who cares what it means to me? Right? Who cares what it means to you? What we want to find out is what did the author intend it to mean when he wrote it? See, if we start there, then we're on pretty safe ground. But if we start off saying, well, to me, this means this, or well, to that, you know, I've been in Bible studies where I just cringe because, you know, the, the Bible study, and this was early on in my, in my Christian life, and I, even then it didn't make sense to me. We'd read a section of scripture, and then the guy would say, well, you know, what, what do you think that means to you? And the person would sit there, well, to me, you know, that means, you know, because of, well, when I was young, you know, it applies this way. And, oh, okay, good. How about the next? Well, to me, you know, this word means this. And then, you know, you go around and you have eight people in the circle. And then you get back to the Bible study leader. And I'm waiting with bated breath. Is somebody going to tell me what it means? Because I just got ten different opinions. And then the leader says, okay, well, that was good. Let's go. Let's move on. It's like, wait a minute. Stop. What's going on here? That's not Bible study. That's Bible suicide. I mean, that's crazy. You know, we have to approach the scriptures the way we would approach our job, the way we would approach the raising of our kids, the way we would approach our own health or whatever. We, we have to do some homework. We have to understand what we need to do. But the primary way the Holy Spirit leads us is by illuminating the scriptures to our minds. Maybe you're here this morning, you're saying, <laughs> maybe you're questioning your own salvation. Ask yourself this. Real simple. You want to know whether you're a Christian or not? Are you understanding God's word when you read it? Is the Spirit teaching you those truths found in God's word? Are you coming to accurate conclusions about what you learn in the Bible? Is your heart convicted when you read the Bible? Does God's word give me joy when I read joyful passages? Does it bring me to sorrow when I read sorrowful passages? Is the Bible a living book to me? See, if you can say yes to those questions, I guarantee you that the Spirit has illuminated your heart and your mind in his word. Well, he also leads us by sanctification. He leads us by sanctification. Once the Holy Spirit has shown to you what the Bible says, basically he assists you in applying it, in living it out. There's a lot of people that know what the Bible says, but they don't take it to the second step. They don't apply it. 
See, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, leads us by prompting our hearts to obey God. Psalm 119, verse 35 says, Make me go in the path of thy commandments, and there do I delight. He also says in verse 133, Psalm 119, Order my steps in your word, and let not my any iniquity have dominion over me. The Spirit of God illuminates the mind, but he also activates the will, and he does so through sanctification, through, first of all, the confirmation of the Spirit. Look at what he says there in verse 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God. They're led, present tense. It's an active thing that's going on in your life. See, when you're not studying God's Word, you're not walking in obedience you're not going to receive this confirmation of your salvation from the Spirit. There's going to be a check there. Something's not going to be right. When you do not submit to his leading, what happens? You doubt your salvation. I mean, that's why the New Testament, all over the place, what's it do? It tells us. It's filled with exhortation after exhortation to be obedient, to be growing in God's word. That's so important. And if you think coming here, sitting here for an hour, hearing somebody expound the scriptures, well, that's what it's all about. You've missed the whole point. This is just a celebration of all your study you've done all week. Just like it's a celebration of my study that I've done all week. If you're relying on some guy to come up here, stand behind a pulpit and somehow give you enough to get through the next week, you're sorely mistaken. I don't care who that individual is. You have to invest. Then you will sense this confirmation. Because the Spirit's leading is not sporadic. It's not something that's momentary. It's a continual reality in the life of every believer. Secondly, it's also the conviction of the Spirit. Not just the confirmation of the Spirit, but the conviction of the Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit's help... I mean, we would have so many problems. It's, it's, you can't even go there. I mean, he restrains you from sin. It's through him, Romans 8.13 says, that you kill the deeds of the body. The Holy Spirit battles with you against sin. He doesn't leave you to fight it alone. Even when we fail to resist sin. What does he do then? He convicts us. He leads our heart, our mind, and our will to go in the right direction. When you're tempted to sin, you'll hear his voice. If you fall, you'll hear his voice again. Why did you do that? He painfully convicts us So that we never want to commit that sin again. Galatians 5.16 says this. Walk in the spirit and you will what? Not fulfill the lust of the flesh. See if you follow the, the path which the spirit has you on. If you follow the leading of the spirit. Sin will become less frequent in your life. It's very very clear. Um. Paul tells us in Galatians there, verse 17. 
For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they oppose to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the, the flesh are evident. In other words, it's, it's very, very clear. There, there's no um, misunderstanding here what the works of the flesh are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, by the way, things like this. <laughs> Everything else. Just in case he didn't hit on your little pet sin. said ever, Anything like that. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those, look at what it says. Those who do such things will, what? Not inherit the kingdom of God. Won't happen. But instead, Christians, if your life is messed up with all these things, or any one of these things as a way of life, if you're living for sin and not for Christ, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he says. I mean, you can make your profession of faith till the cows come home. That's why it's so important that we understand when we hear those who are caught in the homosexual lifestyle, and then we hear that, well, they're Christians, and they're in the homosexual lifestyle. And then you hear of churches affirming them in their homosexual lifestyle because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. There's something wrong. There's just something wrong. Because the Bible says if you're going to practice such a lifestyle, it's a sinful lifestyle, just like you would practice an adulterous lifestyle. Does that mean you live perfectly? No. It's speaking of lifestyle. Speaking of high-handed sinfulness. Just, you know what? I'm a Christian, but here's, here, this is who I am. I'm just going to do this. You know, I'm an alcoholic, so I drink. I'm just going to be drunk all the time because that's who I am. Or you know what? I'm just an angry person, so I'm, I'm just angry all the time. That's just who I am. You just have to accept it. We wouldn't say that. We would say, no, you, you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> and what Paul goes on to say is that, but the fruit of the Spirit, fruit, singular, fruit, singular. It's not the fruits, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Remind yourself when you're praying, it's singular. And you're talking to somebody about the fruit of the Spirit. is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are things that are indicative of a life in the life of a believer. Against such things, there is no law. What happens when we don't do those things? We grieve the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit's a person. It's a person of the Trinity. He's a real person. He's not just some smoky thing that you know, floats around or whatever. It's a, he's a real person. 
and he can be grieved. It's also possible to insult the spirit of grace, Hebrews 10.29. See, if you don't follow the spirit's leading in your life, as a Christian, if you don't, you're not going to have the joy and the peace that God has promised to you. Your, your Christian life is going to be miserable. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're miserable as a Christian, then you need to go to God and you need to say, you know what? Am I a Christian, first of all? Because if I am, why am I doing these things? And if I am a Christian, then I need to start stop listening to the flesh and start listening to the Spirit so that I can experience this joy and this peace that you promised me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. It doesn't say work for it. Work it out. If you're saying that you're a Christian, this should be fleshing itself out in our lives. The Spirit of God should be changing us. And it says to do so with fear and trembling. I think today in our churches, we've, we've come to understand God's grace so much, which we're thankful for. But we, we count on it so much that there's very little fear and trembling. We like the verse, bold I come into your throne. You know, we like those verses. We don't like the verses that calls us to fear and trembling before a holy God. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. What's God's purpose in your life? To do his will. That's it. That's it. Has your will been redirected to his? When you look deep down inside, do you find that you really want to serve God and you want to act according to his good purpose? God's not going to force you to be godly against your will. He changes your will by this new birth that we've speak, spoken about. John Murray had it right when he said this, the activity of the believer is the evidence of the Spirit's activity. The activity of the Spirit is the cause of the believer's activity. Let me say that again. It's kind of interesting. The activity of the believer is the evidence of the Spirit's activity. And the activity of the Spirit is the cause of the believer's activity. See, if you're trying to please God, it is because the Spirit of God is at work within you, leading you to want and to actually do what he desires. Well, that brings us to our last thing quickly here. He says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the last spiritual truth here basically is those led by the Spirit of God are our true brothers and sisters. In other words, we're part of the divine family. We're all in it together. The King James Version started this verse. It says this, for as many as. And that's a good rendering. It emphasized the inclusive nature of God's family. You know, we need to remind ourselves continuously that there are many differences between believers within the church of Jesus Christ there's differences of class, personality, background, economic status, temper and abilities, drive, sensitivity, thousands of things. 
They have led to divisions in churches. But not all divisions are over doctrinal things. Many divisions exist that should not exist. And sometimes these Christians in one camp kind of become suspicious and even fail to associate with those in another because they think somehow they have a corner on the truth and they're the only church. What this is telling us, if, 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 if the Spirit of Christ dwells within you, if you are being led by the Spirit of God, then you are part of God's family. The church you go to is kind of second. And Paul wanted that very clearly understood, that we're all, those who put their faith and trust in Christ, are children of God talks about a similarity of a disposition when you're called sons of God. That's why he calls us sons of God. Sons are the object of a special affection. Any father would tell you that. And thirdly, sons have a title to some particular dignity or advantage, as we talked about being heir. John Piper put it this way, When you fight sin by trusting in Christ as superior to what sin offers, you are being led by the Spirit. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be one that's not led by the flesh. Lord, that just ends in sin, death, all kind of upheaval. Lord, even as believers, when we fall into sin, we see our lives fall into disarray. And conviction fills our hearts and steals our joy. And so, Lord, as believers, first and foremost, let it begin with the house of God. If we need to repent, if we need to turn our hearts back to you, if we need to confess of some known sin in our own lives that is causing you dishonor, whatever it might be, Father, we thank you when we do confess it, when we come and we heed the Spirit's conviction that you are there ready to apply that forgiveness that has already been accounted to us because of what Christ has done. We thank you for that. And Lord, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray, I I ask, Lord, that you would do that work that divine work that only you can do in the heart of an unbeliever to open their eyes, to open their heart to the truth, the simple truth that they're a sinner and they need a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior and that he will come into their life in a brand new way and put things in right order in a way that honors and glorifies him. And that they can experience for the first time the forgiveness of sin, the relief of that burden that they've been carrying for oh so long. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's.